Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. We have with us a figure known to everyone listening today, Stanley Fish. He's the Distinguished University Professor of Humanities and Law at Florida International University, visiting professor of law at Benjamin Cardoso School of Law at Yeshiva. He has a long and distinguished academic career going back to the 60s. He's been at Berkeley, Johns Hopkins, Duke University, University of Illinois, Chicago, as well, many awards. He has won his books or, or two-minute account. I'll just mention some of the recent ones. Uh, Winning Arguments is one, and How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One. He had a book a few years ago on the TV show from the 60s, The Fugitive, which was a fantastic read. I have a copy. Welcome, Professor Fish. Well, welcome indeed, mentioning that book of mine on The Fugitive, which is a favorite of mine. Well. Uh, Michael Freed told me once that you, when that book came out, I, 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 was, I crossed paths with him. He said he was an old colleague of yours from Hopkins. He says, Stanley was always wanting to write a book about the fugitive. And uh, going back to the 60s, and I have to tell you, after I saw you give a lecture on the fugitive at Princeton about oh, yeah. seven or eight years ago, uh, my son was hitting you know, 11, 12 years of age, and we started watching all the old fugitive episodes. It's a great show for young boys to watch with that, with that character because it, it, well, it appeals. He's on his own. Yeah. He has to keep his head down. He goes from place to place and he's on a quest. He's searching for the man who, who killed his wife. And he always ends up getting involved, often reluctantly, in people's lives. And there's always a, that, that moral moment when he has to say, do I have to risk myself and get involved and maybe call attention to myself? I'm the fugitive, the, the detective after me. And by the way, my, my son loved the Javert character, the, the pursuer, yeah. uh, that, that, that actor. But, so you, I, I owe you, we watched four, it was on for four seasons, I think. And That's right. we watched Debbie episode, so and he, he loved it. 120 episodes. And of course, uh, when he's confronted with any moral choice, he always makes the correct moral choice uh, without reflection uh, or without uh, any, any lengthy reflection uh, because uh, it constitutes his character that he is that kind of person, which is why all of the other people he meets uh, are drawn to him. They see in some in him something they would like to be, but usually cannot be. That, that you know, something that's right. They sense in him something, some 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 moral core, some some force. Sometimes they don't like it. Uh, it it annoys them, and they try to provoke him right. uh, in some way. But he doesn't slip. No, he, he doesn't. He, he, not holds, at all. he holds firm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another pro TV program of the same era to watch uh, with your young son. Uh, is The Rifleman, uh, starring Chuck Carnes. That's right. Because the character is equally steadfast um, in, 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 in a moral and parental way. Right, right. That, that, you know something? We're going to we're gonna, work. I remember The Rifleman. Uh, and <laughs> I remember the credits, the, the opening scene in The Rifleman with him putting the bullets into that, into that rifle. Right. But the TV show, I felt, was far superior to that movie they made with Harrison Ford, which completely sentimentalized the marriage. Right. Because in the TV show, 
they've just had a bitter argument. Yeah, about about uh, adoption. About adoption. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, but the the fugitive is not our topic for oh, today. Right. <laughs> we have a book. Too bad. Too bad. <laughs> we have a new book out here. Well, implicitly, there were issues of liberalism, yeah, right. liberal individualism, freedom, as well in in that underlay that plot that come up here in your latest book. The book is called The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump by Stanley Fish. This, uh, this just came out. And I think the, the, you know, the first thing to say, the First Amendment, this is what the, what the first is. And uh, when you go back to the issues of free speech. You've been talking about this for several years. You had a book several years ago called There Is No Such Thing as Free Speech and It's a Good Thing Too. 25 years ago. Quick, what, but this issue hasn't gone away. Yeah. The, the, and, and the idea that you're pushing it. What was the the quick thesis of that book and how does it carry over to this book? Well, it carries over very well. The thesis of that book was that the First Amendment uh, is not a single principle that can be identified uh, it's not even a fixed uh, doctrine or idea. Uh, it's a collection of phrases and aspirational hope and legal uh, distinctions uh, that can be packaged in different ways uh, depending on different situations. So that there's not one First Amendment, uh, there are uh, many First Amendments. Uh, and uh, this flexibility that the First Amendment displays its lack of a firm doctrinal or principled uh, center is not a deficiency, uh, but is at least in my argument uh, what makes the First Amendment usable. That is, the doctrine can be worked and then reworked as time change, times change, as new situations uh, arise, uh, and then the First Amendment can be refashioned um, in a way that allows those who wish to get from point A to point B legally or socially or politically to do so. And that trying to make it into a principle, as you put it at one point, an apolitical oasis of principle is one, impossible, uh, partly because of definitional reasons that we'll, we'll get into. One, it's impossible. Two, it's going to, if you do try to do it, you're going to end up being coercive and illiberal in, in just the broad, the broad sense. You can't do this, but people keep trying to do it. They do, because they want to believe, and I understand it, uh, that this doctrine, which is celebrated uh, often um, in media by the American Civil Liberties Union and other groups, um, is in fact, as Justice Jackson said, uh, the, uh, the star in our constitutional ferment, uh, firmament, rather. And uh, it is not, but that doesn't mean that it is nothing. Uh, and my book attempts to, in effect, be on both sides uh, of that, explaining why the First Amendment is not what its most uh, zealous uh, proponents say that it is, but also to point out that having taken away from the First Amendment uh, some of the claims uh, made for it uh, by many who have, in effect, made it into a theology, uh, that the First Amendment then becomes more useful, uh, an instrument uh, that we uh, can employ, and by employing change, uh, 
uh, as circumstances change. People don't like to hear that. Right, right. Well, you say that in the, in the first chapter, you say that censorship is not contrary to free speech. It is actually a precondition of free speech. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that uh, in many versions of what I call the standard free speech story, right. uh, the uh, ordinary or uh, default situation is one in which uh, all speech, no matter what it is, um, is allowed and encouraged. And exceptions to uh, that uh, tolerance of speech uh, are, are, are unique and must be justified. Uh, my argument, on the contrary, uh, is that the what we might call the Hyde Park situation or the uh, corner uh, soapbox situation or the situation in which you're ranting to yourself in the <laughs> shit while taking a shower. Uh, these are very, uh, these are outlier cases. The more ordinary cases... No, Stanley, they're what all of life should be. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> these are the more ordinary situations, the situations in which we uh, move and live every day are situations where constraints on speech are built in. They're built into one's understanding of what the goals of the uh, enterprise are at the moment, into one's understanding of what would and would not be an appropriate thing to say. Uh, and such understandings exist both uh, in our culture, uncodified but nevertheless real, and also exist in our legal culture where they are uh, codified uh, and then uh, debated. If there aren't any constraints on speech, speech is meaningless. That's it's exactly purposeless. the point. That's it's, the point. Yeah. If what you had were simply the production of noise, what supposedly the First Amendment protects, uh, then you would not be producing, as you've just said, meaningful discourse. Meaningful discourse, when you say something, you say it against the background of all the things that you aren't saying and all of the things that you uh, would in fact deny uh, uh, if they were said. Uh, so th that condition of built-in constraint and restraint um, is one I think that structures our life with speech all the time. Things start getting complicated. Things start getting difficult when you try to draw a clear line between speech and action. Yes. How, how much, how, I, I mean, what, what, what is, what, where would you, where, would you try and draw a sharp line or would you, would you try to look at things in, in situational contexts? Well, there are several, you're actually posing several questions. Yeah. Let me yeah. back up for a bit. When I said that there is no principle of free speech or no core doctrinal center of free speech. I should then add, but when you're arguing a free speech position, I would, I would suggest that you, I would advise you to argue in the, in, in, in the terms of rhetoric of principle. Uh, that is, uh, even though, as I say several times in the book, there's no principle in sight, uh, arguing as if there were, is part uh, of the game that is being played uh, in uh, First Amendment discourse, and I don't, use, I never use the word game dismissively. Right, uh, right. It's a stand-in right. for uh, culture or the set of prevailing circumstances, uh, or, uh, or or something uh, like that. So uh, I'm not 
arguing for the abandonment of uh, first, the First Amendment rhetoric. In my book, this book, and in other work, as you've noted, I'm trying to explain what underlies it or what, in fact, does not underlie it. Uh, I've been teaching a course this semester called Law at the Movies. Uh, and one of the movies that I taught was The People versus Larry Flint, uh, which is a, a movie about pornography and its uh, legal situation, and is also, in many ways, a pornographic movie. Uh, and it uh, has at, his, at, his, at its dramatic climax uh, the scene in which uh, Larry Flint, uh, the uh, editor and uh, and in fact, the uh, you know only begetter uh, of the mo the uh, magazine uh, Hustler um, is uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, where uh, he is being in effect confronted by Jerry Falwell, uh, and he had placed and he had portrayed in Hustler magazine uh, in what he labeled as an ad parody the story of Falwell having drunken sex with his mother uh, in, an, in an outhouse. Uh, and the question as to whether or not this was defamation, falsehood, some combination uh, of the two. Now, the Supreme Court decided in that case, Falwell versus Hustler, uh, or is it Hustler versus Falwell? I always get the, the order mixed up. At any rate, the Supreme Court decided in the case, uh, A, that it, is, that it is not, that this ad was not libelous because it was labeled a parody and therefore was not asserting a fact, and so it couldn't be held to be libelous. And B, uh, that uh, it, was not, it, it was not the tort of the intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, because celebrities who put themselves in the public eye uh, uh, nevertheless uh, in effect, open themselves up to criticism. And the third argument put forward by the Supreme Court at this moment was uh, that the ad parody portraying Falwell and his mother in that posture was, as they said, a cousin or a, a relation of political cartoons uh, that, for example, and these were the court's examples, uh, portrayed Lincoln as having a gangly, awkward posture, or portrayed uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt with a jutting jaw and a very long cigarette holder, or portrayed his cousin Teddy Roosevelt as someone with very large, prominent teeth. Uh, so those are the reasons that the court gave for, uh, in effect, siding with Fall. I think, and I believe that those are all bad reasons, and especially the last reason because. I very was going to say. Very simply, um, Teddy Roosevelt did have big teeth. Franklin Roosevelt did often smoke with a long cigar a cigarette holder and had a jutting jaw. And Lincoln did have an awkward, gangly uh, posture, but Jerry Falwell did not have sex with his mother. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you got. Yeah. Now, but but this, this, does this get to what you talked what you said a moment ago, the theology of. It's just well. Well, maybe okay. we'll return to that. The okay. reason I brought this up is because I taught the the movie uh, in in my course, and it just so happened uh, that a very prominent uh, uh, civil rights lawyer by the name of Bert Newborn, 
who teaches at NYU, also played a prominent role in the movie, quite literally. He was cast uh, as Falwell's lawyer mm -hmm. in the Supreme Court proceeding. But I knew that uh, Burt believed that the, that the case had been rightly decided. So I invited him into my class where after looking at clips from the movie and discussing some of the issues, we had it out uh, to the delight of the 50 or so uh, students in the room. But at one point we reached an agreement which bears on the conversation uh, that we were having. He agreed with me, for example, that the distinction between speech and action doesn't hold up under philosophical uh, investigation. He also agreed with me that the First Amendment did not have a core principled center. Mm. Uh, but then we both agreed that despite that, it was a good thing to have a First Amendment that in a sense set certain parameters that were forever being debated, mm -hmm. but nevertheless debated in a useful way. And we should expect the debate's going to go on forever. This debate is going Every on. situation will... will, will but, and we've got to stop regretting that. Uh, but I don't oh. think we will. Uh, no, I, I don't think we will. Um, anyway. Yeah. Well, on, on the speech and action thing, the, uh, the issue of whether someone's speech prompts someone else to action, how do we draw that line well, it's an of responsibility? A, it's an right? impossible line to draw again theoretically or in terms of principle. Because as Oliver Wendell Holmes said in one of the early free speech cases in the first two decades of the 20th century, every idea is an incitement to somebody. Hmm. Now that's absolutely brilliant, which shouldn't hmm. surprise us since it's Oliver Wendell Holmes. Every idea is an incitement to somebody. That means it's impossible to locate a set of utterances that you could then designate as hateful mm -hmm. uh, and expect everyone, in, 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 everyone in every uh, population or constituency uh, to agree with your designation. Because what is hateful to some will be truth spoken to a world that needs it uh, to others. So the designation of hate speech, while possible, this is hate speech, will always be a political designation. It will never be a designation based on principle. What is the line? Hate speech is what your enemy... So, uh, what's hate, the exact line? What I said is hate yeah. speech is what your enemy says loudly. Right. <laughs> and right. often, I should have added, uh, and successfully. And by successfully, I mean it seems to have an effect in the world uh, that you regret and wish uh, to remove. Uh, and the example that I use a couple of times in the book is the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, which uh, pickets the funerals uh, of soldiers uh, with signs like, God hates fags and your son is going to hell. Not because the members of the church believe that this particular soldier uh, was a homosexual, but because they believe that uh, the wars that the United States is experiencing are the result of God's wrath. Uh, at the laxity toward homosexual behavior um, displayed uh, by the United States, both in the legislative um, and in the judicial areas. That, uh, you know, people who uh, think about the Westboro Baptist Church 
want to say things like, they're crazy. Well, they're not crazy. In fact, almost all of them are lawyers. Hmm. Uh, they're not, well, of course, some lawyers are crazy. Uh, but they're not crazy. They just believe something and believe it strongly that a lot of, a lot of other people don't believe. Uh, and what a lot and a lot of other people find what they say is hateful but you're never going to be able to devise an algorithm although Mark Zuckerberg among others believe that you will be able to devise one never be able to devise an algorithm which will separate hate speech over here and demarcate it from speech useful to our democratic conversation so it's always acknowledged even by strong first amendment uh, proponents that the uh, speech that is useful to our uh, democratic conversation uh, can be quite sharp uh, and caustic um, and uh, and and angry, but there's an assistant. There's an insistent that you can draw a line between speech that has those characteristics and speech that is truly hateful, and you cannot, except politically. So that means that if you get into power, uh, that is, your party has the votes in the legislature or uh, you're, uh, a member of your party uh, sits uh, in the White House, you might have a chance of labeling the speech that you feel uh, is, is, is dangerous, pernicious, uh, strikes at the fabric of civilization, uh, uh, hate speech and therefore legislated, legislated against. Although if political fortunes turn, as they always will, uh, then uh, you're going to be faced with the possibility that when they get into office, uh, your enemies will do the same to you and to your speech as you did unto them. Can we call this the, the Harry Reid rule? You have to, I know who Harry <laughs> well, Reid is. He, 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 he was the one who changed the Senate rules on votes. For the Supreme Court. Oh, I see. Which then turned around when the Republicans took the Senate. I, I this would, is why we yeah. got that they could invoke that rule to get a simple majority instead of the sixty votes right. in, in in the past. And anyway, there, there's there's an example. If you think I mean, if you think politics are forever on your side, you're 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 deluded. Right. But the people who uh, the people who are strong believers in First Amendment principle think something else. They don't think that politics are forever on their side. They think something more dangerous. They think that truth is forever uh, on their side. And they simply can't understand anyone uh, who questions uh, the present shape of what uh, one might call the liberal or libertarian view uh, of the First Amendment, which says, among other things, the more speech, the better, or, or, or quotes uh, repeatedly the two key remarks by Justice Brandeis, uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant, by which he meant that if there is bad or pernicious speech, let it into the light of day and everyone will see what it is and it will wither and die on its own. Or his other comment was um, the remedy for bad speech is more speech, not enforced silence. Is is part of the post-truth condition the, the dissolution of that faith? Well, faith, as we both know, doesn't dissolve. 
<laughs> it's, uh, it is sometimes lost, but it doesn't dissolve. And it certainly isn't dissolved or shouldn't be dissolved by philosophical arguments. Uh, but I think that uh, if, we can, if the post-truth condition is anything, it's the realization of a situation that has always obtained. And that is the situation that you uh, spoke of a, a few moments ago. Uh, where objective, absolute, neutral, objective truth, uh, and there are many other ways uh, to describe it, has receded, or, and in fact, has always and already uh, receded, uh, at least uh, since the expulsion from Eden uh, and the rearing of the Tower of Babel. Uh, since then, uh, there have been many voices, many truths, uh, many perspectives, uh, and no independent way of deciding between them. That's the situation we've always been in. Uh, but uh, that situation has been, shall we say, made more visible. One thinks of the great Miltonic phrase, darkness visible, uh, has been made uh, more uh, visible uh, in the in in the era uh, of the internet, where people despair of ever being able to do uh, what the two quotations from Brandeis suggest that we should be able to do with our rational capacities, winnow the true from the false, separate the defamations and the lies from what is just honest, vigorous criticism. Uh, and that's, uh, and, and I, uh, the uh, fail, the in, our inability to do that is not the result of something that has happened in the world in the last 20, 40, or 100 years. Our inability to do that is the fact that we are fallible beings and will always be fallible beings. Seeing things through some lens, through some set of beliefs, some assumptions or presuppositions where others in the next room who are as equally well-educated and credentialed as we are are seeing things through another lens, other assumptions, other presuppositions. How, 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 do, you, how do you cope with that? Well, I so cope you? with that in ways that I think uh, everyone traditionally has coped with it. I look to institutions and traditions of inquiry that over the decades and even over the centuries have proven to be trustworthy. Yeah. Not trustworthy in an absolute sense, that they always get things right or only issue statements that are absolutely true, but trustworthy in the sense that they represent and have an aspiration to be truthful. That, for example, is my definition of fake news. The definition of fake news is news that, that, that issues from persons or groups or media organs that have no concern at all with being truthful, as opposed to those other uh, institutions, media institutions, academic institutions, professional associations, that have as their op aspiration to be truthful. Mm -hmm. So fake news is what is produced by people who don't care, who are just using whatever comes 
uh, into, uh, uh, into their view uh, as a means uh, of, of realizing and prosecuting whatever individual end they may have uh, at the moment. Do you think the universities on this score are in trouble? Well, the universities are in trouble. Universities are always in trouble, and they're in trouble for a good reason from my perspective. And you, that, you say at one point, universities are not in the democracy business. That's right. Uh, universities are not in the democracy business, and they're not in the free speech business, and that's, of course, the title of one of my chapters. Free speech is They're not, in the free inquiry business. Free speech is not an academic value. Free inquiry is, and free inquiry... Uh, rather than allowing a proliferation of voices and inviting every voice in uh, in an open and democratic manner, free inquiry demands that voices be vetted, that votes be taken in departments, uh, that deans committees pass uh, on the recommendations of departments below them. Or as I put it somewhere in the book, the university is really an engine for the exclusion of voices. Hmm. Sending away more than uh, than are allowed to speak. Well, Stan Stanley, the uh, the deans, the provost's favorite word is inclusive. I know they don't mean it. <laughs> you know that that's the word that they will say, and that's the word that you will see in mission statements. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything, and it shouldn't mean anything, because if you're you know, the last, you know, uh, I I teach both in. The legal academy, and I used to teach more in the liberal arts academy. Uh, but if I'm teaching a course on the First Amendment, um, you want to be sure as a dean that I know what I'm talking about, that I have in fact some record uh, of uh, being um, able to say things that others in the field have recognized um, as legitimate in the sense uh, that they are that what I've said um, uh, is professionally produced, not simply randomly produced. So you don't want someone in your classrooms uh, simply because he or she has a voice. You want someone in your classroom because the voice in this classroom uh, has been tutored and refined uh, through a course of education, through interaction uh, with other scholars in the field, uh, through the submission of essays and books to learned journals and university presses, all of whom, again, are engines of exclusion. But that's not the sense in which I would say that the university is in trouble or perpetually in trouble. The university is perpetually in trouble because, at least as I see it, the university is a place where contemplation and deliberation uh, in the sense defined by Aristotle, by Cardinal Newman, by Immanuel Kant, uh, by uh, Michael Oakeshott, and a host of others. That is, we come to the university in order to study matters uh, that uh, arise in the fields of the humanities, social sciences, uh, physical sciences, mathematical sciences, and computer sciences. So in the university, the old uh, Marxist quip, uh, we are not here to study the world but to change it. Darn right. Goes, is, is in fact reversed. <laughs> in the university, we are here to study the world, not to change it. Uh, so for me, uh, the university is something 
that must exist in a realm that stops short of the waters of action. And therefore, because it does, it, it, it occupies that area, and because so many of the constituencies outside of it want action to be taken, the university is always under siege yeah. by constituencies that want to take it over and remake it uh, uh, in, in the image of whatever uh, political urgency uh, seizes this particular uh, constituency. And since this happens all the time, is always happening, uh, the university is always, I believe, uh, in a state of resistance uh, to those who don't want to allow the space of reflection that it is to remain a space of reflection. You know, the old Marxists that I, that I talked to, or even Marcuse, you know, I mean, Eugene Genovese, mm-hmm. they, certainly they believed in, in social change, political change, but they also believed you got to do your homework first. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they were people of the book. You had, they, they required intense knowledge, not just of the Marxist corpus, but you know, your politics, your economics, your history, and your, and your cultural material as, as well. And so the, I, I see no conflict between the, uh, you know, a ruthless criticism of everything existing, as, as Marx or Feuerbach, Feuerbach would, would put it, and you gotta read your books. You really gotta, you really gotta get, get all that stuff under your belt. Uh, under your belt first, and I. Well, sometimes I worry is that the university puts people too much in a hurry. Right. You know, get that's, them through quickly. That's right. That's why I like. Uh, Oakshot wrote a brilliant essay called "The Idea of a University," obviously modeled on on Cardinal Newman's uh, book, in which he described the years for students in a university or college setting as an interval. Hmm. Uh, and he says it's an interval. Uh, in which you're not worried about, and then he lists the kinds of things that you will necessarily be worried about once you step out into the world and have to earn a living or make your way or get elected to an office or become uh, an associate uh, in a law firm or any of those things. So the university uh, is a place where, and here I'm going to quote uh, Andrew Marvell, where you do not feel time's winged chariot at your back. Uh, but that you do feel not that urgency, you feel the urgency to explain, to study, to historicize, to compare, uh, and to talk in a way that is recognizably academic. And there is a way that is recognizably academic. If I walk into a classroom studying 17th century poetry, which is one of the specialties that I've had over the years, and I walk into a classroom uh, let's say here in New York at Fordham University, and then I journey out to the West Coast and I walk into a classroom at Stanford studying that same material, I'm going to recognize the conversation. Yeah. I'm going to re- recognize the conversation uh, because it is couched in terms that the discipline provides and legitimates. Uh, and those uh, are the, the terms, as I've already said, uh, of deliberative reflection on important matters and objects. And that's what we do. But, there's, I, but uh, here I'm repeating myself, there are always people out in the world who want us to do something else. And sometimes 
There are people within the university who want us to do something else. And these days, uh, it's mostly uh, the groups of protesting students uh, that we read so much about. They, they want the university to immediately reflect political urgencies and to organize university functions, classrooms, extracurricular speakers, lots of other things, according to those political uh, urgencies. And so, I fight that. I Steve, fight that. When you were an undergraduate or a graduate student, uh, did you have time to protest? I mean, I, I, I worked part-time and, you know, I was going to, to hash in a sorority to get, my, to get my food and then I was studying all the time. Who has the time? Well, to... not only that, <laughs> I agree with that, but when I was an undergraduate and a graduate, I hadn't the slightest idea of what the political views of my instructors were. And in fact, it would have been odd of me to think of them as having political views because I knew them only as people who were asking me to read these texts, whatever they might be, uh, and then to have a view of them that could be supported by evidence and citation and all the rest of the activity that goes on regularly in the academy. Was, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't it nice to have all those questions suspended? I think so. It opened a space for, for again, the contemplation. So, right. And, well, anyway. The book is The First, How to Think About Hate Speech, Campus Speech, Religious Speech, Fake News, Post-Truth, and Donald Trump. There's much more in the book that we didn't touch upon, including, including some campus controversies, including the news in the, in the Donald Trump era, including Donald Trump's speech as well. So uh, I recommend it to people. The book is out. It's a great read. Thank you, Professor Fish. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you.